So hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 75. If we were Marvel Comics, we would have a holographic cover for this episode. Um, but we're not that advanced. So please look forward to our 75th anniversary podcast. Uh, we have been on the air, the air, the digital waves of the internet for four years and three months now, which is hard to believe. Well, uh, most podcasts hit around 200 to this point, I think, but uh, we are not most podcasts. But uh, thanks for sticking with us if you have been listening since the beginning. And if you are new, I hope you're enjoying the show. Um, today, we have Azeel. Say hello. Hello. Wow, that is not, that's like your lumberjack voice. Let's hear a normal, I'm from France, Azeel voice, please. Bonjour. There, there we go. Exactly. And we also have special guest, Grail. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming, Grail. You are welcome. Um, <laughs> Thanks for coming, Grail. That was a genuine, that was a genuine tone. Yeah, it felt so, genuine. It's interesting, actually, because, Zeal, you were just in San Francisco um, a month ago, right? Oh, right? my God. Yeah, that's about right. Uh, yeah. yeah. A month and a half, I think. <clears throat> and you were, were you sleeping on Grail's couch? Yeah. Or were you... Okay. Yeah. He, he's, he slept where I'm sitting right now. Oh, did, he, is, did he leave an impression? Uh, well, not as far as I can tell. At least not oh, a visual man. one. His spirit remains. I had a, um, when I was in high school, I hosted a LAN party at my house when my parents were out for a weekend. I had like 20 people over, and uh, this very, very large person sat on my family couch for about three days straight. And when he left, the stuffing was gone, and there was a giant <laughs> ass imprint that oh, never no. went away. And... That was the only thing that my parents, the only, only, way, only way my parents knew some shit had went down, because fat ass sat there for three days, <laughs> and there was a giant ass impression there. I think we, uh, we've all lot, had childhood stories of like having a, having a guest over and the whole thing going horribly wrong, and your parents like never forgiving you. Yeah, well, I mean, I, they never got the full story. They just knew some fat guy had sat there for three days. <laughs> <laughs> the full story was totally insane. Like, how do you explain? uh, Yeah, it's a tough one. That's a tough one. But um, since we last recorded, uh, I know you guys have talked about this on on your little special episode. If you guys haven't heard that, it is in the the forums. There's a Coming to America edition of the Skullcast, which is uh, Gabu Latula and Grail and Azil talked about uh, exploring uh, West Coast America while Azil was here on business. The entire West Coast mapped. Yeah, the whole West Coast. <laughs> and cheeseburgers and cheeseburgers and cheeseburgers. Didn't you also go to Hooters? Yeah, I'm amazed well, as is still alive because he ate wow. a lot of cheeseburgers. But he's yeah, got you know, it's, an iron stomach. Thank you. As much as I berate, like personally, the idea of going to Hooters, like cause I've been there once, <laughs> I totally get it. Like that is kind of it's you know it exudes Americana, right? Like you know, yeah. even well, though I wouldn't go there let, normally let's myself. Be, let's be clear. The only reason I even know. Hooters exist, and the only reason I decided to go there, I mean, I suggested we go there, and then Grail insisted we did, is because you once, you told me about the one time you went there on a date, you know, that's, that's oh, why, man. that's the reason I, I even know the place, so, you know, don't, See, like, don't start on your high horse, oh, you know, I, I, I re, you know, <laughs> revile the idea of going there, but I can understand why you guys lowered yourself into doing it. It's my it's I, my I, fault. It's totally my fault because I really wanted to try their fish sandwich. <laughs> that being said, oh, that being said, the ass on that chick with the oh black thing. Oh my god! Wow, wow! It was like Jesus anti-gravitational. Christ. We got to tell you about this ass, Wally. I, 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 I don't I, regret I say, going. 
<laughs> we were there, do, do and you... we we got kind of a, a girl who was, uh, you know, just kind of normal looking. We were like, okay. And then this girl walked by who was clearly like the special Hooters representative. Champion. <laughs> <laughs> and she just um, had a booty that would not quit. And we were just like, wow. that's. If you got great. a picture of that booty... We could measure the pixels of it and then determine <laughs> the, the impact of the force. Derive its mass and the force, the kinetic force it can yeah. exude. Yeah. Shout out to Resonance if he's listening. Buddy. <laughs> this is the second ass joke, and we've only been recording for five minutes. Well, this is just the quality of it's the off show, to a great man. Start. It's going to be about. a good episode. So what I was getting to was uh, you guys recorded a special episode, and on that... Uh, you talked about the new trailer for the new anime that's coming out mm-hmm. and the new volume cover, uh, the border and all that. All that stuff has happened since we last recorded a proper Skullcast episode back in March, I think. So I think we missed close to a month or a little bit more. So I wanted to briefly go over that with, you know, with the foreknowledge that if you've listening to the show, you probably already know our impressions. But um, what did you guys think of the trailer? Again, brief as possible. Go ahead, ask well, uh, you know, can you like, remember that far back? Yeah, it's like wow, the the what? Um, <laughs> you know, I like the fact it was a dynamic. I guess you know, uh, tried to be badass and everything. But then again, I I felt like the animation was very uh, rigid, so it felt you know it felt like it was really quickly put together. You know, to be honest, uh, so. You've got this model. I also felt, you know, you've got a mix of uh, 2D shots, like the one with Puck, that's beautifully animated in 2D. And then you get these shots of Guts fighting the skeletons, which are obviously uh, CGI. And, you know, and they've got this strange, uh, almost cell-shaded quality to them. And combined with the uh, awkward animation on Guts, uh, yeah, you know, it's kind of a strange feeling. So mm-hmm. I hope mm-hmm. I, I hope the final product is uh, much more refined and the scenes are better integrated. You know, I've actually seen some uh, anime series with uh, 3D put into them, like the ones, <clears throat> the Ghost in the Shell ones, uh, the TV series. And, mm-hmm. you know, they do manage to get some good shots where they integrate them intelligently. But I feel like for, you know... Uh, characters like that. At least what was done in the movie was pretty shitty, so I just hope they do a better job of that. Yeah, I mean, the the technique itself, as you've said, it can be refined to the point where it is a seamless integration and it it works for the medium. I think the issue is, is this studio competent enough to pull off that technique and not make it seem jarring or not making it stick out? You know, that's the challenge that they have. Yeah. And it remains to be seen just from the trailer that we've seen. Uh, I I thought it was okay. I guess the most telling thing so far is that I'm not completely turned off yet, uh, which is, you know, I'm looking at this pretty critically just as a matter of course. Uh, coming directly from the movies, which I hated. So uh, it doesn't. It looks fine. I think they're holding their cards really close to their vest with their promotional material so far. Like we've yeah. just seen, it's almost exclusively guts in the the brand episode from Volume One. And yes, we have seen some promotional material from the Holy Iron Chain Knights, but we've also seen a Sidro and Puck, and like it's kind of all over the place as far as like what their vision is for what this anime will cover. And so there's still a lot of unanswered questions about the scope of it. And the reason I bring the scope of it is if they're going to stretch it out, like, honestly, if they're stretching out what I think they're doing, incorporating Black Swordsmen, Lost Children, and bits of um, conviction, 
what will that pay? What will the pacing of something like that be? You know, that sounds like a very ambitious project. And so yeah. that's why I'm kind of wondering what the plans are. There's two ways to look at it is they could try to cover everything and take the time. Uh, they could do some flashbacks to explain some Black Swordsman stuff, or they could just try to compress everything into one season, which mm-hmm. would probably be messy because it would take shortcuts. So I hope yeah. that's not the case. That being said, like you said, I mean, I, I really didn't like the movies. Uh, I thought they were terrible. But, you know, I'm I'm not, how to say, I'm not down on this before I sit, which is, you know, I, I think that's how you can tell the difference uh, between the people who are being objective or, you know, as objective as it can be and those who are subjective. We mm-hmm. got a lot of that, you know, when the movies came, where there was the guys who would just not admit that well, there was anything bad about them because like they're friends of, of berserk so you know it's gotta be good and then there was people who are more critical like us and we got accused a lot of being i don't know overly snooty or elitist or not understanding that you know uh, when you adapt something into another medium you, you gotta make changes but i think the way you can see people objective is that yeah despite not even liking the id much uh, I'm remaining open personally until I see it, and then I'll just judge it on what it is. Yeah, so, same here. I was just like, fundamentally, my needle is not moved in one direction right now. Yep. So, yeah, I know, I can't remember if we talked about Volume 38 yet or not, but at the cover of it, I, I had wished we had not gotten yet another Guts posing on the cover of it, but uh, given the content of the, of the volume, it would have been great to have a Falconia one or... Rakshas, Rickert, Griffith, uh, Erica, all of these things would have been great to see and uh, cover a painted format, but there's still the chance that the posters inside will be awesome. I think there's still, if they're using that one with Guts with the Dragon Slayer as the cover, that means there's still a two-sided poster that in either of the artworks that we've seen yet, so that'll be great to see. Uh, I think that's dated now, June 20-something? Yeah, uh, I'm ready. Volume 38. Yeah, so you can already pre-order it on S-Book. And probably Amazon pretty soon because the ISBN is now a known quantity. So there's a thread for that if anybody is interested in pre-ordering. Yeah. Anyway, that's the background for this episode. Um, one extra thing I wanted to do was uh, we have lots of people on our forum that have been giving very generously every month on our Patreon, which if you have not visited yet, it's patreon.com slash sknet. And uh, we've gone a long time on this show without thanking those regularly um, for those that have consistently donated uh, their money to our Patreon. And so um, I want to just take a moment here and say thank you so much to those who have continued donating through all these months without any props on the podcast, without much mention on the forum. I just wanted you to know that your efforts keep the translation work that's happening on the site, you know, happening. It would not happen at all or at a pace that it's happening now. Um, so... I hope everyone's already received the reward tiers they asked for. I'm pretty sure we've been pretty good about that. I know Grail's been hard at work on them for more than a year now. Um, well yeah. over a year now, actually. Yeah. Um, I've got one more left for Branded that, that uh, I'm working on. And I know that a few more people haven't decided on what they want yet. So, <laughs> I'm, oh yeah. Well, they're both people that I know in real life already. So Incantation and, and Link, will they'll let me oh, know okay. when they're ready. <laughs> Cool. Yeah, I'm always. I mean, I know it's up to the, the, uh, the patron to decide whether they want that artwork public or not. But I feel like I'm always excited to see what you're working on. So anytime they're okay with sharing it, I would love to see what you've been working on. Absolutely. So, yeah. I'd be, really uh, cool. Yeah. 
absolutely. It's always fun to, to show what I've been working on. Yeah. So in case no one knows the, the money, uh, aside from very nominal server fees, all the donation funds have gone towards uh, translation efforts by Puella, our community's translator. Uh, since the Patreon launched in 2014, we've raised more than $3,500, which is roughly $200 per month. Um, it's so awesome that you guys have been able to share some of your funds with us. And it's nice that Puella gets uh, compensation for the work that she's done. She's done a Berserk for many years in the past and all the work she's still to do in the future. Um, since then, since we started in 2014, she has translated, of course, all the episodes of Berserk that have come out since then, uh, including 75 or 76 of Mira's comments on Young Animal at a rate of one per week since she started. Uh, Mira's 2015 Star Wars interview, and of course the giant Berserk Illustrations file interview, which was like 4,600 words, which she translated over the course of a year. Uh, looking ahead, she would like to work on uh, Mira's two of two of Mira's earliest publications, Futatabi and Noah. Both were one shots released in the 80s prior to him beginning Berserk. And we'll see what happens in the future. Hopefully, another interview, but it's up to Puella what she how she decides to spend her time. So again. Thanks so much, guys. And if you want to check it out, the Patreon, it's at patreon.com slash sknet. But we are here today to talk about Volume 19 as we continue our reread project. Um, I have to say, I didn't think this reread project would go so long. Like, it's a, it's a, it's an ambitious thing. Uh, volume 19, we have covered every single volume berserk at varying lengths. I know some of our episodes were, you know, one volume per episode and recently been going two and three, you know, vo- uh, episodes per volume. So... But Volume 19 is one of the speedier ones in terms of pacing, uh, but I'll get to that in a second. I wanted to start with the cover of Volume 19. Bazil, I think you said in the past this was your favorite cover? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, when I said that, uh, it was probably like, you know, Volume 23 was out, so obviously, ah. you know, but yeah, it remains to this day one of my favorite covers, and maybe even my favorite cover. I mean, yeah, I, I can't, I don't think about these things very often. But yeah, basically I love it. I love the blood moon behind guts. I love the pose he's got, you know, jumping in midair. The dragon slayer, he looks very fierce. Uh, I feel like it's uh, what's uh, it's both pretty innovative as a far as the composition of it mm. is, and uh, pretty classic because it's a black swordsman in action. So yeah, just that I don't know, I love it. Yeah, it's the best of both worlds, isn't it? Because yeah. we know that Mira loves to experiment with uh, angles and poses, and this is so dynamic, and yet it's very much like a classic uh, yeah. black swordsman image. And you mentioned earlier the cover of 38, and the fact it's just another cover of Guts, and we've gotten used to that by now. But yeah, this one I feel like is one of the really nice ones, where it's not just Guts standing in a pose and being there and doing nothing it's uh it's pretty it's both classic and yeah i don't know it felt very new at the time to me and still now it feels very unique it's not it's unlike any other so yeah for that reason. it's also very appropriate to the volume i think uh even though it doesn't happen at night necessarily it's an action pose and guts is traveling somewhere very quickly throughout most of this volume and i think it's evocative of just the overall atmosphere of this volume um 
one yeah. of my favorite part about this though is of course the pose and the angle he takes with it which is very unique but also just the way the light plays from behind him on the armor like mm-hmm. the way it just highlights just the curves and the contours of the armor it looks very cool i really like the, the color of it as well yeah everything has one giant tone cast over the whole thing it's just a very cool idea yep I like um, it a lot and even the fact the moon is there, I mean, it's not, it's just a backdrop here, but it's also evocative of the bigger event at play in these volumes. Right, yeah, yeah. And it's also, also the moon is bigger than Guts. I like that as well. It's just a fucking huge moon. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Yeah, good stuff. Um, what's really special to me about Volume 19 is like the, the breakneck pacing throughout the entire thing. It's one of the more, one of the more straightforward volumes in terms of structure I can think of because... It's really about Guts trying to get to Casca, but of course there are all these other plots that converge along with that, kind of running parallel to that happening, uh, along with the Holy Iron Chain Knights, the Beard Apostle trying to intervene. But um, all these barriers stand in Guts' way to getting to Casca, and um, more than before, I think you get a good sense of how superhuman Guts has become to like the average bystander, the average knight that he comes across as he blows through them, blows by them. As soon as Guts arrives in Albion, you know, the previous volume was all about that, as he's heading there on the outskirts of Albion. Now he's here. As soon as he arrives, things are kicking into high gear. It's it's like a big machine where all the springs and coils were set in place and now suddenly are activated. Everything's in motion. The Holy Iron Chain Knights, Guts, Casca, and all that momentum is going to coalesce in the Incarnation Ceremony, which is just next volume. Um, another thing that's really big about this volume, is, I thought, is since volume 17... Guts dedicated himself to protecting Casca, and their reunion happens in this volume. It's a very memorable moment. Um, so this is effectively the beginning of that dynamic of him protecting her from the supernatural threats. And I, I think that I like that Mira kind of started that with a very a visually memorable moment. That two-page spread of him and Casca. That uh, I feel like I've seen more fan arts of that or like fan colorings of that than, than probably any other two-page spread. I've seen probably <laughs> like a hundred or so of that. People, it's a very popular two-page spread and w- with good reason. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we will go into the volume itself. Uh, it opens with a preview picture of Casca. And um, I like this a lot because we don't know a lot about what's happening in Casca's head. And her relationship with Guts is very uh, troubled. And here she hasn't seen him for a while, but I don't think that she's just mesmerized in this scene. This is when Guts first lands and is doing that whirlwind yeah, attack. But but the reader doesn't know that when he of opens the volume, so it's even, yeah, yeah. I feel it's even more interesting in that regard because you like it's a shot. She's looking at something and reacting to it, and she's got some drops of blood on her face, but you don't know what it is. And uh, yeah, I think it's even made more powerful when you actually see that she's reacting to the guts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Opening up the volume, we have um, a lovely uh, tour, to a brochure of what Albion would look like. Visit beautiful Albion with <laughs> corpses on wheels. The postcard. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the breaking wheels uh, in full display with crows, I'm assuming, diving down to catch a snack with uh, Albion out there on the horizon. Um, the episode opens. This is Black Swordsman on Holy Ground, uh, with the cultists uh, giving offerings to Luca, who they see as the caretaker of the witch, Casca. And Casca's uh, draped herself in, like a child, in all the jewelry they have. I like that there's an immediate consequence to what happened in the previous volume. You know, they now regard Casca as their witch, and so this immediately sets off the delicate balance that Luca and the girls have created among the other refugees in camp. They were talking about that in the beginning of the last volume, how... 
they share their wealth to make sure that no one, you know, sus- not suspects them, but that they're, they're flowing with the equilibrium of everyone else. They don't want to become the target mm-hmm. of yeah. anybody else. Is that trying and to we avoid... see how that plays out. Yeah, exactly. Trying to avoid they're just jealousy. Yeah. Yeah. They're trying to remain harmonious with the, all the other people there. And this sudden influx of wealth and attention immediately throws off that balance. And we see how that plays out in just a couple pages. It's very quick. Yep. Uh, consequence. I like those that the girls, uh, like, you know, the greed is expressed. They can't, like Pepe and the others, they can't refrain from liking to be given all these gifts. Pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah, because these are girls who probably never gotten anything nice in their entire lives when you think about it. So they're like, this is their break. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if anything, you know, this is what their their goal is, right? Is to, to make money. And here, here it all is. So, you know, there's an immediate, you know, inclination to just Go for it, you know. Right. Luca takes the bigger stance. Yeah. I don't know if their goal is to make money, you know, more so than to survive in this situation. But yeah, in any case. I, I think they're closely related. I mean, they of course, they want to make money to survive. But I mean, like, wealth is the goal when they're, you know, selling their bodies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if given the choice, they would have chosen that kind of life as opposed to being forced into it by the situation. That's what I of meant. Of course. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. There's not a lot of skilled labor happening out here in the refugee camp. Yeah, pretty much. You starve or you find other ways to live. Yeah. Um, one thing that it's interesting, Nina's perspective on this is, you know, she immediately wants to just throw Casca under the bus saying, you know, what's going to happen? I mean, so she's immediately just goes for the, the dark solution. Uh, but Luca holds her hand out as if she's going to slap her again. And Nina re- recoils at that. They've already had established this relationship of kind of mother-daughter kind of thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's fun. it's interesting to me that Nina seems to have proposed that before. Because when she says so, you know, Luca is like, it feels like they've already had this conversation. So it's pretty, yeah. you know, it's interesting to see. It remi- you know, Nina reminds me of uh, Carcass here. Like in, in the way she's the everyman or every woman, whatever, where she'll take the cowardly way she'll be you know that kind of person and as opposed to luca who's morally very firm you know and unrealistically virtuous in some ways yeah. <laughs> well i don't know if it's unrealistic but at least she's like she's standing straight in you know boots and everything whereas nina's you know it really reminds me of how people behave in real life the way she says we've done enough she'll get by on her own uh, Let's give them to these guys. I'll take care of her. It's a, it's a kind of, you know, taking the easy exit. I don't know. I feel that it's very, very realistic. Whereas, yeah, Luca is more of an exceptional character in that regard. She's very heroic. Yeah. She stands out a lot more. Yeah. Yeah, she disagrees on principle. Even if it's the practical thing to do, she won't abandon Casca. That's what she says. Yeah. That being said, I think, yeah, in this scene, it, it shows she herself. She has her doubts, and she's also tempted to be... You know, yeah. a lesser person, I guess, but she, yeah, she, she refuses to abandon them. Right. Uh, and is immediately, uh, there's word out from, word on the street is one of the people has, Pepe has gotten mm-hmm. captured and is being uh, paraded in front of everyone by one of the Holy Iron Chain Knights, uh, saying that she is a, are they saying she's a heretic or that she's, I can't remember the actual actual provocation it actually is not really gone into much well you know it's really just like 
Go ahead. No, uh, you know, the fact you don't remember is, uh, to me, it indicates something within the story that the guy doesn't really care, you know? like Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you, you see uh, bystanders who are basically laughing and saying, oh, maybe some other prostitutes got jealous of them. And the mm-hmm. guy is just, he starts, you know... Uh, yelling at her about everything about you know all these people are so lowly and they'll just stare at the guys who get caught but when it's their turn they say they're innocent and pure and everything and he just goes on and on while starting to whimper and just you know i don't know he's yeah he he i think he embodies here like everything that's wrong with these guys with the church he gets almost in a rage and uh and yeah, basically, it doesn't matter why she's being taken away. And she knows that. She knows she'll get raped and killed and everything. They all know that, and it doesn't matter. And I think yeah, it shows the kind of system. It's like fascism. You know, it's, it's that kind of system where, you know, as long as the government or the power in charge has got its eye on you, you, you're done. No matter what. It doesn't matter if it's unfair. It doesn't matter. You know, you're just done. And I think this guy is a pretty good uh, example of that. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, of all the people uh, in the church, you know, he seems to be enjoying this position, this sudden position of power they have over this group of people to cast judgment on them immediately. Uh, they say on the previous panel that there was an indictment, you know, you can answer yourself in trial. And of course, that's really happening right now. You know, it's not like she has much of a choice here being whipped already. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's a nice, it provides a nice image here. Uh, Luca jumps out in front to be, to catch the whip. Yeah. While he says that if she's innocent, why isn't anyone standing up for her? And then Luca does. And the guy, I think, you know, I like that he boss recognizes uh, the balls that Luca's got to have to do that. But at the same time, he makes fun of her because, you know, he's like, well, don't you understand? Now you've condemned yourself as well. So it shows how carb the system is, whereas he was blaming. He was saying uh, Pepe couldn't be innocent because no one was standing up to her. But, you know, as soon as someone does, they also condemn themselves. So it shows a kind of, uh, you know, corrupt system in place. And Luca shows again her courage. You know, before that, she was admitting to Nina that she's got a doubt and she could also. But, yeah, she just won't stand up for this bullshit. And, um, yeah. and yeah, I think it's one of the few scenes, like, you, you, you don't get that many scenes actually showing her being a hero. But I think... Uh, in this one, she really shows what she's made of, and uh, that's pretty good. And I mean, she's she's placing herself in a position where she's willing to go down with Pepe. You know, she knows the consequences of this action is pretty much you're done. There's no re- yeah. recourse from this. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, from doing something like this. Yep. Anyway, uh, as soon as the guy pulls the whip back, uh, it wraps around this giant metal thing, and he gets pulled <laughs> off of his horse, and it, you know, Guts is on the scene. I love the the first page we have here. The perspective is very low, making Guts look just huge and imposing Yeah, uh, as the full-page spread. It's great. Guts. It's great, and especially since the tension was rising. You know, like, you don't know who the girls are going to get out of this. And then, like you said, this huge chunk of iron shows up and you know that's it the savior is here that's pretty great <laughs> uh my favorite part about this whole scene is this whole sequence is uh the guy recognizes him uh as the black swordsman and which sends out you know a wave of chant you know 
into the crowd as the name goes through everyone. Yeah. And the guy Im- immediately says, hmm, lucky me to think we would meet again <laughs> in such a place. You want to get away this time? As if he has any fucking chance. And, you know, Gus doesn't even kid around. He's just like, well, he is kidding around. He just grabs the guy's face. You know, it's not like he's going to get in a fight with this loser. You know, he immediately recognizes the, <laughs> the situation. The guy's face is being squeezed. It kind of reminds me of Zod, you know, um, squeezing the apostle's face and at Flora's mansion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Anyway, uh, Guts is uh, immediately sidesteps the situation, just interrogating the guy, uh, asking if he's seen a, a girl with a brand, which Luca recognizes the, the 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 term. Anyway, by that point, the Holy Iron Chain Knights are actually trying to take down Guts, so he takes him down in three swings of his sword, or is it two? Two. Yeah, two. Just I love this uh, the way it's the way it's shown, the way it's portrayed with the the action panels. Oh yeah. On, uh, this, as the slices he makes, the focus on the the large white, uh, and the the movement of Guts' face. This is really lovely drawn. Yeah, yeah. I, need, I, I like that. You know, it's kept on the page afterwards. It's something you've commented on in the past, Walter, where Mura will, you know, like the slash. He'll keep the positions, the way the bodies fall makes sense. You know, compared to how he slashed them. So mm-hmm. I, I like how this is composited. It's very uh, thoughtfully done. Yeah, I was actually just going to say that I like how a lot of the detail, even in a lot of these like really quick action scenes, Mira keeps uh, a lot of the detail maintained in, yeah. in these shots. I mean, cool. the, yeah, the, I mean, the guys who are moving out of the way of the corpses of the horses falling, you know, that's the kind of stuff. <laughs> and it could just be, I don't know, a white background or just dirt yep. or whatever, but... He actually took the time because there's a crowd to do this this kind of stuff. So yeah, it's pretty like the small things, but it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I had not thought about that crowd thing. It, it makes sense though, because the crowds in almost every shot, even in the action sequence, I mean, it's conveying this is a very crowded scene. This is a very crowded area, you know, with all the refugees everywhere. I think it makes sense to incorporate them. Maybe yeah, it's optional, but I'm glad he did it for sure. Yeah. Anyway, um. They're still, they, you know, despite chopping off the horses' heads and the men's, you know, the guy still says he should restrain. Please go and restrain guts, as if anybody has a chance. Uh, but anyway, Asidra pickpockets the uh, the leader, uh, introduces himself as uh, Asidro, and they're here to find um, Casca. Like how Puck <laughs> introduces himself, and it says, "That's my that's my main pad, Fortress of Iron Guts." I, I like that. And, uh, I like that. Uh, how to say it? That's the first time Puck calls uh, Isidro Dorothy, and it's also the first time I believe that Isidro's called a monk oh, yeah. by Luca. You know, uh, something that's become a recurrent theme since then. <laughs> as Sh- Shiruk has, you know, taken up the the sword in that regard, the torch. <laughs> right. And gets comments on this being holy ground, even though it looks like a dump. And this awesome. Well, uh, he said what everybody was thinking, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And that final page, final shot is really cool as well. Um, him thinking about Casca. And of course, we see where Casca is, what Casca looks like now. Yeah. Um, that shot of Guts at the top, that was used in promotional material at the time. I remember way back then, uh, volume 19, volume 20, that was used for a lot of the uh, volume 19, volume 20 sales at the time. Hmm. It's a cool shot of Guts. Yeah, it yeah, is. pretty much. So the next episode is called Straying, and it starts right back into the action with uh, horsemen striking at guts from both sides. 
uh, he definitely avoids their lances with just a shift of his head, which shows, I guess, his prowess, and uh, cuts them down again in uh, two swift strikes. So we get to see a shot of uh, an astounded crowd, which uh, I guess has become a kind of a sta staple for the series now. <laughs> uh, I like uh, I like how Isidro and uh, Lucas' face are depicted, you know, especially the <laughs> you know the, they are really really uh, awestruck by it. And uh, also, we get to see the the Higgs being, uh, let's say, confused by the fact he's not weak like he was the last yeah. time they met. So they're like, "What? What's going on?" Pretty funny. Then someone throws a stone at the the guy who uh, at the whip, and he gets all aggressive. But then the stairs scare him, and I really like that shot and his reaction because you see all these eyes looking at him. And he knows the power he had uh, just a moment ago is gone. That now they're ready to basically rip him into pieces. Mm. Uh, and so they withdraw. And, and I like that, uh, you know, it's not the fact they could not have defeated Guts anyway. It's the change in the crowd that prompts his decision to withdraw. So I like right. that because, again, I feel it's very, very realistic. You know, like in a crowd uh, control, you, you get this when the people start getting really riled up. And, you know, so, yeah, I like that. Yeah, he sensed the atmosphere change and then bolted. Yeah, pretty much. So, um, yeah, the next page is a lesson, I think, in efficient storytelling from Mira, because we could have expected the meeting between Guts and Luca to take, I don't know, 10 pages, even an episode itself, but instead it's just 10 panels. So, we get Guts ready to head to the tower to find Casca, not caring about anything, you know, he just gets the top and finds the answers. But Luca <laughs> intervenes because she overheard him earlier in the previous episode and uh, she tells him, oh yeah, there's a girl with a thing. So he gets intense uh, to asking her what she knows. Uh, doesn't even want to be thanked, just want to get to the, you know, the truth. Uh, and then he feels pains in his brain because uh, trouble is coming and she notices it. And then she knows it's the same as Casca uh, or Elaine. And then boom, it's done. Uh, you know, the thing. Yeah. You know. So, yeah, pr pretty efficient. It was actually it's just really really smart the way he did it. If you think about it, like you know, Mira had to draw attention to the brand somehow because that's the that's the connection visually for an outsider between him and Casca. Yeah. And then the, the because the Behirid Apostle is nearby, you know, immediately re reflexively touches his brand, which yeah. makes Luca look at it. Which makes her make the connection. That's pretty smart. Yeah, pretty much. And then, meanwhile, we see the Berita also observing the scene, which, like you said, uh, prompted Guts to feel something in his brand. So, yeah, I, yeah. I think... Well, pa pause real quick right there. Yep. What do you think the Behirid Apostle's, like, senses in Guts? Like, what is it that he's seeing that surprises him so much? Is it the brand thing, you think it is? Uh, well, I, I mean, he can definitely feel the brand because he's an Apostle. Yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, that being said, I don't know. I think he's just observing. Again, you know, like mm. it's a really a recurring theme in his character. He observes. And I'm not sure, you know, we never get to know uh, actually what he thinks from all of mm -hmm. this stuff he sees. But yeah, he observes it. So, I don't know. I, I wish I had uh, something to say about that. But I feel like the character is uh, pretty alien to the reader yep. because of his uh, very specific life. And it's honestly it's hard to say what he thinks. I don't think he's necessarily uh, uh, adversarial towards Guts, as most apostles would be. But I also, like, I don't know if he cares because he's branded or if he just cares because he's a new guy who came in, just butted in and changed 
uh, seeing that. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, was that Guts being here disrupts things, and the Behirid Apostle seems to have a pretty good sense of the different forces at work here in Albion, because we see him manipulating events, effectively, yeah. by transforming people, by sending Joachim and Nina against each other, that kind of stuff. And here's Guts, who's basically looks like a big battering ram or a bull in a china shop, just shows up and suddenly, you know, the equilibrium's changed a little bit. Yeah. And it's it's funny because, uh, as we'll see later, the, the Buried Apostle actually helps the enemies of Guts uh, in mm-hmm. two occasions. And, you know, like, he, he bestows gifts, I guess, power upon those who need them, who need them but... Is he opposing guts? Is he, you know, consciously to oppose guts and make sure that what's supposed to happen happen? Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe. I'm not sure. It's a, uh, in any case, it's an interesting question. Yeah. So uh, one thing I love is the contrast between the urgency that guts displays and uh, when it cuts to Casca trying to eat birds and playing with them, spitting them out, <laughs> and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty cute. And meanwhile, Nina is caught in a kind of downward spiral of anxiety and fear. She's afraid the others have been captured because they've been gone for five minutes. So she decides to flee. Uh, again, I think it's, <clears throat> it's pretty realistic depiction of how people who have anxiety problems can very quickly, you know, get in a spiral of, you know, fears that makes them do irrational decisions. So, yeah, she wants to flee, but she feels bad about her previous attitude and decides to take Casca with her. And again, I find that very, you know, I, I know you like Kirkus very much, uh, Walter, the way he was portrayed, because he felt real. And I think Nina is one of these characters which is very, very real. Uh, and it shows someone who has moments of weakness, moments of kindness, whose behavior mm-hmm. is subject to change because she felt bad about something. But, you know, it doesn't mean that... Uh, three hours later, she won't have reverted back to the, her original thought. <laughs> so yeah, I don't, I don't think even even Carcass never really had that moment, you know. Yeah, <laughs> he's always kind of the same character. Yeah, he was pretty d- pretty cynical all the time. It's yeah. true. Yeah, <laughs> and jaded. I do like here though that Casca or that Nina does have a moment where she's ready to run, and then Elaine kind of pats her on the head, and then suddenly the, the words that she had about you know, Elaine previously, you know, let's, let's ditch her, you know, she's a danger to us. Suddenly she changes her mind because, you know, she, she, she feels empathy for a moment, Yeah. you know, about what she'd done, what she had proposed. And she wants to take her with her now. It's kind of a, to make up for that moment of weakness. Yeah. She's, she's pretty shitty, but she's still human. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I like about Nina too. And I think what's interesting is that, you know, early on in her, story arc I guess we learn that she has some sort of illness where you know she's assuming she's not going to get better and it's interesting that she has still like a very strong will to live to the point where you know she's willing to throw Casca under the bus and she I I found that very realistic too because I think in a a different kind of story maybe a similar character would have been like well I'm going to die anyway I might as well do the right thing whereas Nina is just (laughs) like I just I just want my few minutes you know (laughs) I think, yeah. Uh, yeah, all of us who've known uh, people who are dying can say that very few actually are willing to uh, be noble and sacrifice themselves. Mm-hmm. And 99% will just do anything it takes to get a few more moments. I mean, yeah. at least sure. that's right. my that's my experience. So, yeah, it's, uh, again, very realistic. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, meanwhile, Guts is running and in run. Hang on one before we yeah. go further. Sorry, just one more thing I wanted to point out is um, we've seen this before uh, on the previous scenes with Casca, but one of her necklace icons, the most prominent necklace icon that she has, oh yeah, 
uh, is uh, very similar to the symbol on Geyseric's, uh flashback and the center of his armor. It's the sun and the moon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We've we've referred to it uh, on the on the iconography of Falconia as well. We've seen like, a variation of it where instead of the uh, semicircle on the bottom, it's now wings. It's the way Falconia has kind of updated that old motif. And um, we've previously associated that sign that symbol simply with Geyseric, but I think its appearance here is kind of like a third party kind of thing where maybe it once was Geyseric symbol, but I don't think necessarily. A jewelry representing that symbol means, oh, it's a follower of Geyseric or anything that direct. I think it's simply, it's a symbol that has survived all these years. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like how iconography loses its meaning over time. This is another symbol that has withstood time in Berserk's world. Yeah, hmm. and I don't, I don't think uh, it necessarily was a symbol of Geyseric himself back then, as opposed to a symbol of Geyseric war, because it, it sure. had, you know, a meaning and uh, was maybe potent in a magical occult kind of way. So, yeah, to me, it's more like, I don't know, a link between the past and the present, like something which feels very mm-hmm. old and occult and has meaning beyond what, beyond just jewelry. And it's not, uh, I think, how to say, a random thing that uh, it came from heretics who tend to uh, value these kinds of things. So, oh, yeah, yeah I, I think I think there's a, there's meaning there. But like you said, I, I don't associate it uh, directly with Geyseric. More with That's a-, a really good point. Wow. Like, like the fact that the heretics effectively represent like the old world because they reject the, the new world uh, doctrine of the Holy See. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a pretty cool idea. Yeah. Like, you know, they, they, it's all for the wrong reasons. But in, yeah, in, of in their madness, there's a kind of wisdom <laughs> where they'll rec- recognize uh, that slan is a thing, for example. Slan even mm-hmm. exists. It's a, a, it's a thing. And uh, they, they know that, you know, there's powers in the world that are unseen and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, all for the wrong reasons and they don't really understand things properly. But there's still, uh, yeah, there's still a shred of truth in, uh, in their bullshit. So, yeah. <clears throat> It's not unlike a teenager rebelling against their parents and seeking out Satanism because Ozzy Osbourne's cool. <laughs> Only actually, there is a power out there in this world. Yeah, I'm not sure I uh, vet this uh, comparison. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. Anyway, yeah. Meanwhile, Guts runs and ruminates. Uh, he says he feels like it's been decades since uh, he last saw her, and I, I, I somehow I find that very fitting. Just like when he worries, he might be look even more threatening to her than he is to. Uh I, I find that yeah surprisingly on point. Like I don't know, I I've, I feel these two things as a reader when you read that, that's also the kind of things going through your head. So yeah, I like it. And I like the progression shown in the character here from what you know was at the beginning of the Black Souls Monarch to how he evolved even in the last year in chapter to now. Uh it's kind of a, a circle back to being closer to what she knew back then, so I, I don't know. I like how it's, it's done. Yeah. In that scene there, where he's thinking to himself about how she might react to him, he's also kind of indirectly committing himself to her. Like even though, because that was a big thing before, right? Was she was recoiling from him, and he was internalizing that immediately after the eclipse, and that's part of why he left because he couldn't deal with the pain of her yeah. not wanting to be around him. But now he's saying, even if that's the case, it'll yeah. be different this time. Yeah, this know? time he he'll stick. Yeah. It's, right. uh, he's still, uh, Jose, it's what he said in volume 17 in the cave, you know, that still yeah. sticks to him. So I like that. And then 
you get Luca who uh, asks him what Casca is to him. But, you know, when he's... Uh, his awkward response. She said, "Ah, oh, she, uh, she already knows, you know." So I, I like that kind of feminine instinct. And uh, also, like, look, but what precedes that is really funny. I, I like that that look in Gut's face with her immediate reaction. Or she's <laughs> she's reading his reaction as soon as she asks the question. Yeah. And then from that, she determines the conclusion. Yeah, you know? pretty much. Yeah, and it's funny because like when you compare it to Roderick, uh, many volumes later, uh, I like that she just just from his, the look on his face. She doesn't need a, yeah. an answer, she knows, so... Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of a little wink from Mira, like, ah, I don't, I don't gotta tell you guys, you guys know already. <laughs> it's <laughs> kind of cute. Yeah, so now, then we get to the to the tent scene, and uh, it's, it's another one I find very interesting, because they arrive there, and you see Guts is very nervous, because, you know, she's supposed to be there, but we know they're already gone. Uh, as a readers, because we knew we knew they were leaving, but the stress, gut stress, is you know I find it somehow contagious. So that rush to find and save Casca, like the whole scene is just a long, it's like a chase scene, you know, a rush. And uh, you, you said so at the beginning of the podcast, Walter, and I really think it shows in these scenes. It almost leaves you out of breath. I, I don't know, at least yeah. that's how I feel. And uh, especially as we see. Uh, right after that, Casca uh, and Nina are set upon by the heretics. So you see that frustration of guts, and then immediately afterwards, you see uh, Nina is sick. She coughs in her hands, there's blood because of syphilis, and then uh, the heretics, uh, you know, uh, come upon them and kidnap them. Yeah. Um, Isidro and Puck set out to try to do their own search. Uh, what I find interesting about this scene is Estidro uh, kind of getting a, a lay of the land here and how you know messed up the area is. But Puck also notices something strange about um, the refugee camp. Yeah, he can be detected. You know, people are seeing him. Yeah. And um, would you guys read from that? Like, um, what? I I kind of thought that it was because. Go ahead, Azil. If you have an answer, mine's, spe- mine's very speculative. Well, I, I have uh, I have many things to say. First, I think for one page. It shows us a lot of things. Not only the fact that the group has split to look for Casca, and the fact the camp is in disarray, and Isidro comments on that, like you say. But yeah, you also get Puck who questions Isidro's motives for even being there. <laughs> and then, yeah, you get, you know, what you said the fact Puck can be seen. And I think it's born out of uh, the situation there, which is you've got the heretics, you've got trouble brewing that's supernatural, and the people can feel it. They are afraid and uneasy about everything. And I think that's why that contributes to uh, the fact they can see him. It's not just a, a big city where there's no supernatural things going on. Mm-hmm. There's this kind of dread, the, you know, a skinned priest on the trees, the heretics doing their strange stuff. And even then, you know, like a big event is coming. And I think everybody can feel it. And that contributes yep. uh, to them being able to see back. I had a very colorful explanation for it. Their lines exactly with that. I, I likened it to, you know, because there's already, as you say, there's already supernatural things happening here that they're more susceptible to seeing something like that. But it's also because you know, something is coming, you know, and all, all the movements of that big supernatural thing are already in movement. So it's like, you know, the fumes from some, you know, something that's about to ignite are already there. They just haven't been ignited yet. That was my yeah. first thought as well, that, you know, like the, maybe the, 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 how to, how to, 
I'm not quite sure how to phrase it, but maybe the material between the worlds is a little bit thinner right now than it usually yeah. is. Mm-hmm. I would I would totally agree with that. Yeah. So. Even though, yeah, I don't know if I would uh, put it in that way, but yeah, in any case, uh, there's something like that. I think they can smell the trouble in the air, you know, the astral yep. trouble. And it it kind of ties back to what we saw when we first got that explanation with Farnese and the, the specters, where, you know, she might not accept uh, that Puck exists, and so he might be able to pull on her lip or something, and she'll just get annoyed. But when, you know, specters actually come and, you know, touch her and try to possess her, then she can't refuse it. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, I think like, I don't know, if an elf actually came with, uh, I don't know, uh, a spike and poked someone in the face and made them bleed, they would see the elf, you know, because it's just, I don't know, they just consciously, you know, not acknowledge them, but it's not like they can't really see them physically. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. In, in this kind of situation, you know, they don't have that, uh, their sensitivity is fully open and not, mm-hmm. you know, they can't yep. just refuse because they're open to seeing the supernatural. There you go. So, anyway, on the next page, uh, Isidro lays out his plan to to pack, which is funny. I think it's a it's an interesting, uh, how to say, opening into his mentality, which we haven't got yet at this point. Where he explained he wants to, he doesn't want to be trained, uh, bowing his head like a disciple would be to a master. He says he plans to steal God's techniques by following him, or to do. Something for him that would be a uh, great enough service that he would have no choice but to reciprocate by training him. <laughs> and if needed, he'll even take Cascal stage. So, you know, I think <laughs> he, he, he does a good job of showing his, I don't know, I would say his strange character, which is a mix, a mix of childishness and immorality and courage. And also his ambition, you know, he has a kind of desire to do whatever it takes to succeed, which uh, somehow... Reminds me a bit of Gus when he was young, but at the same time, he's really driven by this big ambition, which is, you know, more like Griffiths, but he's still not at all like either of them. So it's, you know, a pretty interesting character. Mm-hmm. It's like all that ambition with none of the maturity of either of those characters. <laughs> yeah, and also none of the morbidity of it. Uh, yeah. If you, if you know what I mean, in that he's. Like, he's ready to cheat and steal and sneak and take yeah. a stage and whatever and lie. But at the same time, he's not hes not a bad guy. You he's know? still he's just, just a kid. Yeah, he, he's yeah. just a kid and he'll still do the right thing uh, when it presents to him. So Yeah, to go on that. Yeah, it is funny. That part of his, like, thief-like, fox-like characteristics are, are a lot of it's for show, you know? Mm-hmm. Cause, because when it comes down to make, making the right choice and doing the right thing, he always does the right thing. You yeah. Know? He's never a bad guy or a conniving kind of person really. Right. Yeah. And I, to continue off that point, actually, I just wanted to say, I think it's uh, in a we- in a weird way, Isidro's character traits are kind of bittersweet because you automatically make that comparison to a young guts and you kind of wonder mm-hmm. what he would have been like if he hadn't had all that tragedy take place in his life. And uh, it's just really mm. interesting. Yeah, that's true because is it, I mean we learn oh we learn now or later he had he had a stable home life and he chose to mm-hmm. leave that life. Uh, we learn it later. So yeah, it's <laughs> interesting. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, as he runs his mouse to pack uh, in this grand way, uh, Isidro actually spots the heretics uh, kidnapping Casca, and uh, he wisely decides to follow them, uh, sneaking you know uh, without uh, <clears throat> say uh, taking them on directly. 
And uh, as he does, uh, Guts and Luca and the girls meet up and they haven't found anything. And instead of waiting, Guts just keeps on looking because he just can't stay doing nothing. And so yeah. that's how the episode ends. So, next episode. Actually, Wally, it was funny. When you first mentioned this um, volume we were going to cover, you said the episode was called Ambitious Boy. And according to Dark Horse, <laughs> this one is Ambition Boy, which I believe is it's uh... a superhero name. <laughs> It's oh, I, so I, 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 I kind of just guessed at the translation, guessing it wasn't that. Yeah, well. <laughs> but I don't actually know. Well, All right. ambition I'm boy guessing it's ambitious boy. Makes no, no fucking sense. So, it doesn't. Yeah. yeah. Well, Dark Horse, thank you again for this wonderful uh, little tidbit <laughs> to enjoy. So we will start the episode here with uh, Farnese gazing upon the body of an immolated, I'm assuming a supposed heretic. And she's standing up on a hill with all the refugee camp behind her, and um, the the other knights are commenting on how she always stares at the stakes until they completely burn out, as if she's mesmerized by them. And um, so it's just good to know, crazy old Farney's uh, same as always. <laughs> and uh, the flames in particular, you know, we know from the end of volume 18 about her fascination with the right. flames and what that does, what that stirs inside of her. I keep wondering, I think we mentioned this in the last podcast as well, if that'll come into play again, like her obsession with flames, her res- the way she resonates with flame, mm. with fire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder, yeah, I think it might, uh, you know, when comes the time to uh, further train her into mag- the mm-hmm. magical arts, will she have uh, an affinity with the actual, you know, like, I don't know, with the salamander guys or... Well, or if, what if she ends up having to summon a flame, you know, entity? And yeah. if she will have some something similar will happen to her as happened to Shierke and yeah. Enoch, you know? I, I think she might, it might be a trial for her. It's, you know, part yeah. of what I meant in that she might, uh, yeah, be at risk of being lost in the flames because, yeah, mm-hmm. she had this fascination for them. But at the same time, uh, it could, Mira could also choose to go the other direction by showing a bit like Serpico, where he, when he first got into the uh, his equipment, he said uh, the wind, like the free and the going everywhere, is so unlike him. But that ended up being, you know, the elements that chose him and he chose. And I'm wondering right. if she might not like her defining or preferred element. If she has one, might not be another one. So. Yeah, many, many. There will be many opportunities for it to come into play. I think. Yeah, I think in yeah. a way, Mira set it up like you guys said. I think we set it up so that Far- Farnese could go either way because I think in a way, fire in this context holds a very particular meaning to her. So since she's changed so much as a character, maybe that ch- meaning will shift. Mm. So I guess yeah. we'll see how it goes. That, That's a good point. That, she's gr- she's grown. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. That being said, uh, she didn't. Like, we didn't see any specific reaction for her when Floaz mentioned bird down or in Ritanis right. uh, when, you know, the fire, like, the, the flame wheel burned all these Dakas and everything. We didn't get any specific shots. So it, yeah. it remains True. to be seen it that will come into play again or if she's, yeah. like, over, over it, you know. There was one, yeah. like, offhand joke from Isidro about it where he was yeah. mentioning. Yeah. And Farnese was like, uh. <laughs> yeah. And well, she's, she's handling the torch. Isn't that what it is? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I think I think Sepik also commented on or had a look at some point. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, it was a thing at one That's point. <laughs> Just yeah, reminding yeah, her. I mean, yeah, 
Is it like just, are we sure this is a good idea? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's good stuff. So actually, on that note, we've got a, a new panel here of Serpico doing one of his dot 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 moments. Staring over at her, kind of, we don't know what's what he's thinking. But then, interrupting that moment, we have a report from the knights approaching her and Azan and uh, Serpico, saying that the secret uh, heretic's hideout has been discovered. And so, this is kind of the reason why they're here, more or less. They've been assigned to uh, kind of take out the heretics, so this is a big, a big move for them. Uh, yep. But it's also mentioned that uh, they encountered the black uh, the black swordsman uh, and he killed off four of their troops. So we get reaction shots from Farnese and Serpico and Azan who all seem to be a little bit concerned <laughs> that this guy is back in their lives. I like that it affects all three of them in different ways mm. and for different reasons. Yeah. You know, like uh, Farnese, of course, you know, uh, she's terrified of facing what happened before mm-hmm. uh, Zan's eager for a rematch apparently. And yeah. Serpico is wary of it because of uh, how it affects Farnese. Right. One thing I specifically like about this scene is that Farnese is immediately very uh, authoritative and very cool headed in just saying we've been released from that duty. Our first priority is to cooperate with the inquisitors the eradica- uh, with the eradication of the heretics. And so she's very like, she cuts down Azan and she's like, no, we should do this. Mm-hmm. And she's very like she's a leader in this case, and she takes the right, you know, like she chooses the right choice, you know, which is to do that. And what's interesting is that you know, as we see in the next panel, that's not at all how she feels. She's actually mm-hmm. terrified of the black swordsman. But in that moment, like I think that's a great case of her uh, fake persona of the strong leader and you know the perversion everything it's really a great example of how it came into play and so yeah uh, i I like it yeah that's a really good point you know she's she's taken charge and then all of a sudden you see this scared little girl that we retroactively recognize when we uh, get to her flashback yeah Um, but Serpico knows her better than anyone, and he he knows that's a mask. Yeah. That commanding, authoritative tone that she's taking, and she's actually terrified yeah. inside. Right. And, I, and I like that shot, like when she thinks of the Black Soulsman, what she pictures herself naked and vulnerable because yeah. she had just been possessed in front of him towering. Whereas his own perspective of that must be very different. Like, yeah, uh, it was oh, yes. <laughs> like what the hell just happened? It's yeah, all it's about like perspective, man. <laughs> yeah. And one thing I also like is that we don't actually get to see Joachim. Uh, at first, we see only a silhouette and a side shot. And then when, he's, yeah. when, he, when they say, okay, let's move out, let's go there, he says, all right. And there's this picture of him, like, with his, you know, her eyes, you know, really dark. And I don't know, he feels like almost a zombie. His head, her, he's hunched over, his head is in his shoulders. Uh, you know, he feels like, I don't know, a betrayer, a survivor. I don't mm-hmm. know, but he looks very grim and morbid. Yeah, poor guy looks like he just fell off a cliff or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> after he, he he looks he looks reluctant to do what he's doing. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, he looks reluctant. Yeah, he's just yeah. Uh, and it also shows. I don't know. He he's really a good fit for Nina. You know, they're two very flawed <laughs> people. Just a couple of schmucks. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think that was a great shot as well. Like that's a very distinctive shot because I think it holds a lot of emotion because you know he went from being like obsessed and in love with Nina to this, which I think is a very different emotional place. <laughs> so it's very yeah, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, he's getting payback, but... Oh, yeah. Well, we'll see. That's for a later time, you know. Yeah. 
But yeah, still interesting. Very complex character, even though he's relatively minor. So yeah. And so I just want to point out again, we get another Serpico dot 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 shot in the space of two pages, which I thought was pretty cool. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that's the end of that part. And we switch over perspectives to um, the heretics hideout itself, which I thought was nice. They have a nice little establishing shot that they're deep, deep in the rocks. Yeah, I like the cliffs. You know, I I, I don't know. I'm I'm just maybe I'm a weird guy, but I like these shots of you know establishing where you see the cliffs. Then it goes down in the hole, and you see Isidro yeah. looking onto them. It's just I find it great. It's a great shot because you get this kind of like it's it's almost like you get the feeling that it's twilight or like the the way the shadows are playing off the rocks. That it's like time is is shifting to nighttime maybe, mm-hmm. and then yeah. around Isidro like it's black. And the lines are very stark, and he's kind of standing out a little bit. So it's very ominous sign of things to come. So I think the panel is just there as a very fundamental, like narrative, narrative scene transition kind of thing, but also showing the geography is changing. Yeah, that's better. Yeah, it it also feels almost like you, like if it were a camera, you would get a shot diving into into the hole in the cliff and getting there. Yeah, interesting. So. Looks like uh, Isidro discovered the heretics as he was ghosting them on the way back. And now we have uh, the the leader of the heretics, I guess, uh, explaining. Who, who I really like. <laughs> He's a charismatic dude. I like dude. this guy a lot. <laughs> He's tattered robes and everything. He's really like, he's some kind of anti-monk or anti-priest. He's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, he's pretty funny. I feel like if you gave that guy a big brain... He would be my kind of guy, right up, right up his alley. God. <laughs> he, he'd be the one hosting the infomercial. But I like that uh, they mentioned that it's a naked party in, in the little bubble. Yeah, yeah, Somebody had to yeah. point it out. <laughs> yeah. And yet the priest guy it's... is the only one wearing clothes. Good for him. He's moving up. Yeah. So he he doesn't need to, he's, he doesn't want to mix with the riffraff. Exactly. He's he's the one with the staff guys. So yeah. so he's explaining kind of you know the it's like the company meeting basically. He's saying, "Look, guys, we're shifting perspectives here." Uh, as all of you know, you know the stone pillar <laughs> defied in the Tower of Conviction. Uh, yeah, deified. Excuse me. It's just explaining you know why they're not bothering to I guess worship. Uh, with that anymore and they're switching over to the real object of their worship uh, the one that's possessing of power and they bring over Casca on her little throne and uh, she's the guy's the, the guy the crazy dude isn't completely wrong which is what's interesting about the nature of the Holy See and you know the potential for miracles in Albion mm, of course yeah. you know both of these sides are being manipulated of course not to their knowledge both by the God hand but uh, what's interesting here is that the Holy See's symbol, of course, is the white falcon, and, and the the heretics have adopted the dark uh, bird, which is a, a crow, I'm assuming. Yeah, a crow. Um, mm-hmm. But there's some, you know, some, there's some polarity here. And but again, again, like he's um, he's not wrong that the 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 tower itself is a empty, hollow figment of power. You know, it's not really anything significant. They don't need to be fearful of any. Power, because they're the ones that are in power. They're the ones that are closer to the power of the world. Right. Yeah, That's their argument. What I find here. interesting is that from his uh, speech, you would get the impression that uh, they would fear. Actually, they would actually fear and revere uh, Albion and the Holy See if they could actually if they had like magical power. So it's like it's almost a case of well, they don't have guns anymore, so now we can't take them on because we got some guns here. 
You know, it's that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. It's uh, we got a, a, a girl who's a sorceress who has magical powers, and these guys are just pretending to be holy, but they just oppress them with their you know swords and knights and everything. So mm-hmm. I, I like the picture he paints, uh, where it's really just. It's almost, I don't know, almost a matter of power. It's almost like the guerrilla warriors, you know. They're just, we're, we're going to fight off uh, the government because we got the real deal here. Right. Or an arms race kind of thing. Yeah, it's just, I don't know, I just find it interesting the way it's framed by this guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He calls her the Black Witch. So like, her exotic look already kind of plays into their little pageantry. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, just like the, the cross, the dead crow is could be a representation of the dark falcon you know the falcon of darkness yep. mm-hmm. so it's just you know yeah so and the, the plan is to have her mingle quote unquote with uh, the their leader the the goat man <laughs> i wish he had a better name our great goat yeah the great well, you know uh, at the oh. same time it makes sense he's not named because like none of these guys are he's... anybody it's not like they could have given him a name but it just makes no sense I mean, he's just a literally a figurehead. I mean, his yeah. the 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 mask that he wears is his only role. Right. Yeah, pretty much. And I have to ask, where did they find a goat that big? Where they could just chop the head off and make it into a big mask? That is a big goat. You're right. What the wow. hell? Like I, the first and, time and I how does he see? <laughs> I think he sees. Can he see? Or, or are people like leading him with like you know pokes and prods? Like here's the chair, man. Just sit down. I think he you sees know. through the through the through the eyes. You know, he must have. Oh, that's just gross. But yeah, you that's know, the gross. thing is, the truth is, it must be pretty pretty damn gross. You know, and pretty damn. You know, you can see he's hunched over, see, because the thing must be so heavy. Oh yeah. So yeah. it's just you know, but when you think about the details of it, it must be pretty gruesome. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty wacky when you think about it. Uh, so yeah, I guess they are bringing Nina out, and Isidro is watching. <laughs> <laughs> He's thinking, oh, what are we going to do? We, get, we don't have time to... Even I, if we I, go, get I, nap, yeah, go get guts now, it won't be enough time. Right. So, it's up to us, basically. So he has to come I, I up like, with something. Go ahead, Azir. I was going to say, I, I like how they rationalize the fact they're going to sacrifice Nina. They say, oh, she's one of us and she'll you know, ascend into a higher plane uh, <laughs> because we're going to take her health out and it will be a penance for trying to take the witch for herself. So the guy's just... He's basically just gonna kill her, and he makes a show of it, and he's you know bullshitting his way out of retroactively justifying it. <laughs> All the while, yeah. she's saying, "No, don't kill me, don't kill me." So I, I just like the kind of bullshit logic he's using. I just, find, I don't, know, I find it funny. Yeah. Sure. It's like we got to murder her. Let's make it a ritual, though. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. In a weird way, it's kind of parallel to the the moment earlier with Pepe, because it's just like authority, like abused. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We're going to sacrifice someone for the ceremony because, you know, and then we'll, you know, he'll fuck with the witch because, you know, that's that's how we do things here. Right. And, uh, yeah, and they make up a reason for it, pretty much. Like you yeah. said, it's a, it's a good parallel. Yeah, so... If, if, any, if anybody's going to hold a knife to my chest, I don't want it to be the guy that's shown here licking the knife. Oh, man, what a with creep. The, the face and the big... Oh, yeah. What a, what a face. What a face. I like, oh, he, I like the way he licks the knife, too. It's really yeah. just... You know, it's just so gross, this a guy. much. Laying all over really, thick. I really like to cut people up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, that's a classic. Casca kind of reacts to that this knife scene. You know, It's almost as if she's about to have one of her little you know, uh, eclipse flashbacks. Just the, the the setting of it, the framing of Nina, the yeah. look on Casca's right, face. Right, because Nina's being yeah. held down like by these guys. And... 
I, th yeah. I think the f yeah, like you said, the fact there's a woman being surrounded mm -hmm. by people who have violent, you know, uh, tendencies that yeah, is that evokes uh, you know the eclipse to her. Right. Yeah. So. And then our uh, man with the face gets hit in the eye with a rock from a Citra right. who has amazing aim. Yeah. Well, Isidro, you know, I think that scene in Puck comments on it. The fact uh, mm -hmm. Isidro uh, sounds very competent. It, it's like the first time such a thing. But yeah, actually, I, I think that scene is uh, one of the first times you get to see that Isidro is not just good at following people around and, you know, avoiding trouble, but he's actually got skills, even though mm -hmm. he might not know himself. But yeah, he's... He's really pretty good in that whole right. scene. He shows courage and skill, and, and I just let Grail do the talking. <laughs> well, I, I was just going to comment that I, I love that he, Isidro is like, this is a poor man's technique, but, you know, he felt like he had to use it. So he, he didn't even really want to use this amazing skill that he has, uh, which I think is such a great quality. Like, Isidro doesn't really know his own worth, even though he has this ambition, which I think is a really interesting quality with the character. Um. Yeah, because he wants to be a big time swordsman, he doesn't right. want to resort to this, even though it's not like it's not a lesser thing, and he should actually use it. But and is that something he'll get to learn later on? Yeah, right. So I think it's a it's an interesting observation from Mira and an interesting kind of commentary that a lot of people have. Everybody's got their own skills and their own perspective, and they don't necessarily realize it because they're too busy focusing on what you know the mainstream or what what they expect other people to want from them. Which, yeah, uh, I really like that. So obviously Puck is shocked, and then he makes the connection with the name. <laughs> that is kind of like a fourth wall moment. And uh, a little chuckle for the audience, I guess. And, yeah, because I, w I wish I knew what the like the kanji mm -hmm. or what that of that with the you know the actual language there, because I'm, I'm just relying on the Dark Horse translation about uh, a thief who throws stones. Right. Oh, a citra means stone thief. Like I, I don't know what the actual you know what that derives from. I'm sure it makes sense, but Too I don't bad know. Bad. There's well, no glossary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't have it from memory, but uh, yeah, ishi means stone and doro means thief, so. It's just oh, okay. because of the way it sounds. It's it's just a pun, basically. Uh, he's called Isidro, yeah. and in Japanese, it's uh, decomposed in katakana, so Ichidoro. Mm -hmm. And so, because it. it's the same, you know, thief and stone. And uh, actually, would like to know if that played any role in actually naming the character or not. I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> I wonder if he just made the pun retroactively, like he did for many other things, or if it uh, played into creating the character. Uh, that's a, that would be an interesting question to ask him, actually. Hmm. Good stuff. Um, in the, the Dark Horse translation here, uh, he's thrown some very colorful language at the cultists. He calls them limp dick cultists. On the next page, he calls them <laughs> yeah, he, stupid, stupid cheese he dicks. He has a lot to say about their dicks. It, it, I get the feeling that he's like really preoccupied with the fact that they're all naked. <laughs> Yeah, he mentions their their nakedness many many times. Yes, he's... yeah. Yes. I, I think it was uh, Darkos's way to uh, convey the fact he was commenting on their nakedness, and also yeah. uh, he uses a kind of dialect, you know, in Japanese, and so mm -hmm. I guess it just turned it into insults for you know. Let me guess, an irreverent dialect. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, of course, yeah. And uh, I, I forgot, I forgot details, so I'm not gonna say. But I think it's from like don't even from this assault, uh, uh, some kind of uh, province island, you know, not from like not from you know Tokyo area or anything like that. All right. Hmm. So 
I guess Isidro decides to make them all sacrifices to his ambition, so he gets their attention. Puck is <laughs> <laughs> Puck is sent away to go get guts, and uh, the the cultists are going after him, so they're they're making themselves vulnerable by climbing up that little cliff. And Isidro is just like, "Look, guys, this is not going to work out for you," and he starts <laughs> tossing the stones. And I love this one panel on this page where um, he's starting to pelt them with stones. One guy gets his teeth knocked out and, you know, his eye hit. Another guy gets bopped on the head. And then the guy on the far left is like, oh, my God, what did I just get myself into? <laughs> <laughs> just a great little side detail there. So um, yeah. so Sidro makes a comment that, you know, he's going to bop them all. And uh, the fact that they're naked is not helping their case at all. And uh, a nice little flashback moment, I guess, or just like an exposition for his character, yeah. describing how he's been in trouble a lot and wandering aimlessly. So he's kind of uh, just been trying to make things work for himself and reach his goal. But that's when he found Guts. So this is like his golden ticket to stardom and, and legendary status. And he's he's going to do whatever it takes to... Uh, to win through the situation. And then, you know, if he happens to uh, get one of the prostitutes to sleep with them, that'd be great too. He, <laughs> so. I, I like, please be gentle. I, li I like that, you know, he is, uh, he gets so, uh, I don't know if he's excited, but enticed by the idea of the girls uh, surrounding him that he actually lets a guy creep up on him. And, yeah. you know, you, we get this small funny shot of the guy, you know, being like, and he breaks <laughs> yeah. a huge stone on his face. That was great. <laughs> and, and, yeah, I just like how his uh, imagination is ver still very childlike. You know, it seems like he has a lot of experience with, like, the violence of war and, you know, getting out of trouble. But he doesn't really know anything about women because they're just all sitting around him and, like, touching his face. <laughs> Well, yeah, he's, uh, you know, he's just a kid, and I yeah. think uh, we, we all know he's not, like, he's got no experience with girls, so. Right. That's what, it's, a, it's a commentary on that age when, like, you start to notice girls, but you have no idea what you're supposed to do with them. Yeah, yeah. It's very cute. Kind of very thing. Cute. And yeah. one thing you didn't uh, say earlier is uh, when Puck is uh, spitting out, uh, I really love this shot of him where you see his eyes and oh, his yeah. mouth. He goes so fast that he's like, you know, his skin is flapping around his face. So yeah, <laughs> I did forget to comment on that. Thank you for that, pointing it out. Yeah, that's, oh, yeah, that's, that's one of my favorite shots of him. It's just like he's uh, he's learned from Roshin and he's going into supersonic mode here. Exactly. You know? <laughs> he's going to break the sound barrier. I actually didn't know if it was like a costume he was wearing or not, like a mask, superhero mask, or if it was just his skin. Yeah, I don't know. I can kind of see it both ways. Yeah, it's yeah, very I, I disturbing know. looking. It's great. <laughs> I think yeah, it's, uh, yeah it's definitely good. the air, you know, which is making his uh, his skin yeah. flap back, you know, from the... <laughs> right. That's a great look. Uh, so I guess since Isidro's taking all the attention away from the girls, Nina is checking up on Casca to see how she's doing. You see that her brand is bleeding. And I love this panel here after it shows Casca touching her breast and noticing that the brand is bleeding. You see these little heads poking out from under the, the rocks. And you're just like, what? And then suddenly you see the, the kind of the, the bloated, distorted faces coming out. And it, I think that's a great transition. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Everybody, yeah, it's great. You know, it's, things start it's... to devolve into chaos pretty quickly once the spirits seem to uh, have gotten you everyone's know, attention from Isidro. I think you, those scenes, starting with her holding her chest, I think it's a really great shot of her, actually. Mm. And uh, then mm. the ones you described, which are just, you know, uh, magnificent. You, you get this uh, this sequence, even on the other page, uh, culminating with uh, that those big faces in the smoke. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's really like I, I get the feeling that Mira spent a lot of time inking this because oh, yeah. even the shot of the the faces in the the smoke is just gorgeous. I mean, it's uh, wow. It's one of the you know. I mean, it's just one would think there's no specific character or anything, but that shot of the faces in the smoke, it's uh, it's really great. One of my favorites in the yeah. The that's thing. that's a good point. I think they're actually there's so many great shots that aren't recognized as being very iconic because there's so many that are more popular, but I think this yeah. is another great... And what's great is that Nina doesn't notice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's the thing, but the guys who are climbing, they turn around and, yeah, you can see from yeah. their faces, they know shit's about to yeah, hit the fan. The... Yeah. So. Is this the idea of incorporating faces in the plumes of smoke? It's just also very, just very creative mm-hmm. and just totally on point with the way these things manifest. And, of course, this is a, a prelude of things to come. This is just the the kind of the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> for this area. Shit is hitting the pre-fan. So as we'll see, uh, I guess in the next shot, we've got the uh, Iron Chain Knights going up the uh, hill towards the cultist hideout. So this is another great shot with all the rocks and everything. You see how many of them are coming up the hill there. It's quite cool. And then uh, I guess Farnese is pushing everyone forward. Then you get some complainers. So Jerome is like, "Aren't we hor- aren't we knights because we ride horses?" <laughs> Which I think is a great <laughs> line. And uh, so they're kind I, of complaining. I like Sorry. that Serpico agrees. You know, yeah. it's, you would usually <laughs> think two lowly guys, but here it's Jerome and Serpico, and Serpico's like, "Yeah, sure." <laughs> while <laughs> Azan, <laughs> while Azan is chastising them, you know, he's old, but he still got it going. Right. I like that we get a little uh, shot into his, uh, you know, inner thoughts here. He says, I want to end it here, this gruesome duty. So you get the sense that he's, you know... He's, he's not he's, enjoying it. Yeah, he's putting on a face to keep them moving, but he's he's not into it either, I guess. He's just trying to get this done. Yeah. I don't, the heretic hunting thing, I doubt, has ever sat well with him. Right. You know? I'm sure he recognizes what the, the, the fallacy behind the logic of hunting these people down. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, I guess uh, so. Joachim points out the entrance, and they're ready to go. It's a very cool shot with everybody getting their helmets on, and uh, Farnese looking very cool up front. And it looks like they're they're making their way down into the kind of the base area of the uh, hideout. And I love the the images of the shadow like playing off of the fire, the shadows uh, mm-hmm. growing longer from the I guess the people down at the bottom. Uh, I suppose. Yep. Mm-hmm. So they're planning to restrain the heretics, mm-hmm. but they find that they're they're going to have a lot more on their hands than they expected. As one of them uh, falls over onto another guy with half of his face bitten off. And then, yeah, uh, I lo- that- I love that. You know, they're preparing. They see the the silhouette in the smoke, oh, and they're preparing to fight. And then this guy comes and just falls dead at their feet. And oh. then you know you get this shot of the. I know, the kind of spir- bodies. Yeah, this spiral shot of these kind of monsters, and they're like, what, what? Yeah, and yeah, it's very, very creepy shot. I'm glad that this one is actually quite popular as well. You see this one a lot. And Isidro's like, okay, <laughs> things are a lot worse. And then <laughs> Now we get the this... shit is eating the fan. Yeah, exactly, the shit is officially hitting the fan. And there's, I actually really like this panel of Isidro at the top, and then down as you get down further, you get all the, the, the distorted bodies and faces like uh, as they're being possessed, I'm guessing. 
And, yeah. Uh, and now they're climbing like spiders, you know. That's yeah. the oh. feeling I get. Before they were climbing clumsily like humans, but now they're like, their limbs feel almost, you know, twisted around. It's right. uh, very... It's very unsettling. Yep. <laughs> so then we get Casca and, and Nina kind of holding each other as, as in the background, the, the cultists are, are getting down and, you know, getting ready yeah. to cannibalize everybody. And that's just super creepy. As the episode starts, I love the the transition here as the guy, you know, leans over and devours the guy's yeah. face. And we see the remains of that on the ground. I love that the following page, we go from specific to general, because then you see that same exact person in that same pose in the center of this massive crowd of chaos. He kind of just gives yep. you a, encapsulates the entire moment. And this is, this scene here is to me what this whole volume is about. And really this whole sequence of the, of the, of the volume or the, the manga is this crazy chaotic thing that's happening in this otherwise, you know, very order filled world of the Holy Iron Chain Knights trying to hold things down, trying to do this ridiculous task. And meanwhile, they're just like basically in denial of the utter chaos around them. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no way they can possibly hold this down. But of course, Farnese is, uh, we'll, we'll continually try to make sense of this and, uh, make sure you arrest them. Anybody that's not risking, you know, <laughs> it's not going to kill you. Make sure to put some handcuffs on them. <laughs> it's totally absurd. Anyway, uh, I like that um, this guy jumps over her to, to bite her and his on saves the day, which just in a very um, memorable fashion, shoving his staff into the guy's mouth. Uh, yeah, it's gorgeous. pretty... He even almost leaves the guy off the ground, you know? Yeah, yeah, he's on his tiptoes, basically. Yeah. It's one of those many small moments for Azan to shine. He hasn't had enough of them, in my opinion. Yep. But anyway, he comments that uh, he thinks he, he rationalizes this crazy shit happening as uh, oh, must be some one of their bizarre drugs and their rituals. I hear they take drugs. Must be those bath salts. It's all that guess, angel dust they're be. doing, man. It's yeah, yeah. but some you problems. know, I like that. I like that Farnese does better. She remembers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. She she's familiar with the sensation of being overwhelmed by the supernatural. She knows the truth, or at least suspects what's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Sidro's having a hard time keeping up with all the different people, you know, more uh, crazy than they were, more uh, intense. Yeah, more resilient, too, um, because he can smash rocks in their faces. They're not stopping. They're not falling down. Right, right. Um, we also get an interesting perspective from Sidro because we actually see kind of uh, from his thoughts what had happened. You know, the tendrils, you know, swooped down onto the people. That's a nice panel mm. there. So... We actually get to see some a brief explanation of how it went down visually. Yeah, how the specters went from the smoke into the possessing the guys. Right. And one of the people is uh, coming closer to Casca and Nina, and so he uh, tries to save them. Uh, trips over a guy's face and then bounds his way down, thinking he's gonna die. You know, he's crying in the air. The flowers are surrounding him. Yeah, that's him. a great battle. Oh, man. <laughs> I, I like how after he's, uh, you know, unlikely uh, save, he tries to put on her, <laughs> her winning face to the girls, <laughs> and it's just not working at all. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and, and <laughs> Kafka's reaction to him is great, too. Like, she's mimicking him, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. She, she's exactly trying to. And then the guy, the monster, wakes up, uh, would say gets up. And she smashes a rock on his face after being scared. It's just, you know, it shows a mix of comical and serious he can be. Where, you know, 
his skill, you know, just to be able to survive the kind of shit, he's uh, half skilled, half lucky, and yeah, it's you know, mm-hmm. you know, half serious and half funny, so pretty great. Yeah, awesome. He um, briefly introduces himself and uh, says we can explain things later, and offers his coat to Nina as he kind of bends over from the reaction of seeing her. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he spots the uh, heretic leaders leaving on a, uh, an alternative exit. And like, I like that panel of him going, aha, with a star mm. in his eye. Very comic-like. Um, this is kind of a small little pragmatic detail is uh, the the leader saying, uh, go go through, I can't, the horns <laughs> are catching the thing. Just leave that thing here, take the mask off. So I like how we get kind of a behind-the-curtains look at the pageantry of this The cult. guy is really dedicated uh, to his job. Yeah, 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 you know yeah. what I like is that the guy really looks like a, you know, he looks dumb. He's like, oh, it won't fit. This guy just throws his shit aside. And let's go. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the brains of the operation of here, the... guys? Really? <laughs> well, it's it's definitely yeah. the priest, you know. Yeah. I mean, but this guy, you know, it also shows that for all their grand tokens, that kind of stuff, these guys are really a bunch of. Oh yeah. Not even a bunch of amateurs. There's a bunch of losers. You know, they wanted power, mm-hmm. but they had no idea what they were talking about. And as soon as the monsters show up, now they are, you know, trying to flee uh, with their tails be- behind their le- uh, between their legs, you know. Right. Yeah. And this is the first uh, transformation that the Behirat Apostle does of, of many to come, and we actually see the tendril come out. It looks like it has poison on the end of it or whatever, but uh, punctures the uh, goat man, and we I, hear a scream. I like the shot uh, of the eyes. You know, he sees the eyes in the sure. dark, and then you see this this two big round with the light in them. It's very you know, I don't know, scary alien, but it's very, very special in the darkness, you know. Mm-hmm. And yes, and the tendril, and the guy's, <laughs> I like the transition, you know, he gets stung, then you see Isidro <laughs> and the others were falling, and the guys are running back, you know, like, ah! <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty funny. Also, when the um, the goat screams, it actually is going, like an animal might scream, not a human scream. Yeah, it's a, I think it's a, specifically a goat's scream. Yeah, I would guess as well. Yeah. Also, the shadow, the way the shadows play on that wall during that scream thing is very, very yeah, cool. Yeah, it's very monstrous. Because, you know, yeah, we saw that on the way as they're going up the the, the rocks as well earlier, but it's more emphasized mm-hmm. here the way the lighting is. It's very cool. Yeah. Uh, what do you think the Bahir Apostles' motivations are for taking action here? Like, I don't, honestly, I don't have a great answer. Like, does he want to see the chaos continue? Is it something about Casca getting away that he's fearful of? Because that's all the action kind of eventually gets focused around her as a result uh, of this. So. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a mix of things. Uh, I think he didn't he didn't want Casca to get out. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's. But I, I wonder if he has this actual active motivation. We also know uh, he's giving power to those who need it or to who seek it. So mm. in that way, he's a bit mirroring a Beherit, you know, like these mm-hmm. guys wanted power, and uh, well, he just gave power to the, you know, the good dude. And uh, yeah, is he also opposing Casca and Gus, or uh, trying to, I don't know, either make them make sure they stay around, or you know, maybe try to get them killed because they're branded. I don't know. Possibly, I think it might be a mix of all these things together, and maybe also a way for him to try to have an impact and see what happens. Just, you know, mm-hmm. sticking to his role as an observer, he's, uh, you know, putting, you know, maybe equalizing uh, 
things. I don't know. Anyway, he's messing with them and seeing what's going on. Yeah. I agree. I, th- I think it's sort of a experimentation on his part, you know, to see what happened, to see that the, the, the turd, the tide of battle change mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And he's also just, you know, meddling. He's been meddling the entire time with the different for- the two different forces at work here. Right. Observing both sides as well. Yep. Anyway, uh, the goat arriving on the scene uh, changes the atmosphere of battle completely. I like that it arrives on the scene and we have this nice reaction shot of all the Holy Iron Chain Knights. As suddenly, they, they can no longer deny that what's happening is supernatural. Mm-hmm. As a giant goat he lands on two people's skulls. And he, he very easily dispatches, looks like, five or six of the guys with his horns immediately. Emits that inhuman scream as uh, they, they try to retreat. I like that. Farnese. Even before that, uh, Sepico and Farnese were discussing uh, retreating. You know, yeah. they already, like we say, the tide of battle and everything, but I think the, the Holy Iron Chain Knights were already thinking of, I'm not sure they were going to win, you know, against these possessed guys, but now they, yeah, they're getting, you know, now that the goat is here, they're getting fucked. Yeah, I think reality kind of hit Farnese, and she's like, there's no sense in holding them here, we can take them later, kind mm-hmm. of thing. If they actually did buy into the whole drug thing, which is what Serpico was suggesting. Let's wait until they calm down, then we'll take them, was his suggestion. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I don't have much to say, even though I like Jerome, I really don't have much to say about this transitionary scene between him and um, Joachim as they sit next to the fire. You know, they're away from the action, and they're hearing some of the sounds out there. But um, he's kind of comforting Joachim and kind of smugly saying, like, oh, I know, I know how you feel, you know, the weak have to survive somehow by selling out their friends is the implication here from Jerome to Joachim. Mm. But I don't have any comments on this page necessarily. Well, I think, uh, I think Jerome tries to be a nice guy to 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 him. Just saying, he recognizes that uh, as a noble, he's got an easy life, and he doesn't blame mm-hmm. him for for being a snitch. Basically, that that's it. He's like, well, you know, you've been a loser your entire life. You've been pushed around, you know, bullied. Uh, like he says, you know, you you continuously beating Eden, and yeah, I mean. I can't blame you for that. And, uh, yeah, I, I think it actually does comfort Joachim a bit mm-hmm. for what it's worth. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. In a very smug way, though. I don't, I don't think it's that, I don't think it's actually that comforting. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. He's, yeah. he's you know, just saying, well, you know, I, from the place I come from, uh, you know. Yeah. Well, I guess what I mean, I think he's kind of revealing his arrogance by saying it in this way. But maybe He's I'm still very detached, it. you know. He doesn't uh, really have that perspective. He just recognizes that he, you know, he's living it up while other people are suffering, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, he's offering whatever comfort he can. But, you know, all the while admitting he comes from a world where he doesn't actually know the kind of uh, stress and strain and uh, let's say hardships uh guys like Joachim actually go go through. Right. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we get a shot of these two guys in the camp, the Holy Iron Chain Knights camp is a, a light, you know, zooms by them and then they see, and they, they think they saw something move, his guts, you know, the silhouette of guts jumps over them and lands and then runs by. At the, the speed he must be moving at is really impressive. You know, this is one of those, you know, rare moments where we see how guts really is just like, you know, the real fucking deal. Mm, yeah. Because he's able to just Batman over these people. Uh, and this whole, like, you know, kind of flashing action sequences is, is leading up to his big moment uh, in, a, in a few pages. But I like that it begins even now. Mira's kind of slowly building to it. Yeah. 
as Cask is surrounded by um, more of the transformed heretics, the goat guy, who has six fingers, by the way. What the oh. hell? Random. Did he always have six fingers? I don't remember. No. Really? But either way. Ooh. Yeah. Well, you know, it's he's weird. a monster. Super creepy. Yeah, sure. He's also, that always happens. He's also got a fucking goat's, goat's head, you know I mean? And a snake wiener, as we're about wiener. to notice. A snake, yeah. Yeah. And of course, the uh, the goat is focused on uh, which mingle with become family. You know, he's those those he didn't forget those words. He was looking forward to that moment. He does not want to have it at the night. Yeah, yeah. So well, you know, that's his motivation for things. He's become half retarded, but uh, he's still. You know, I mean, it's always the same with these monsters. So there's two things I remember: yeah. is to food and sex. You know, and I guess violence. Yeah. So sure. Anyway, you said earlier that uh, that panel of the. You know, monster eating a guy's face was uh, in the midst of the battle. Was what the volume was all about, and I, I, you know, I don't disagree. But I think in another way, this episode, uh, the Iranian, is what the volume's all about, uh, and which is guts and Casca being reunited. Mm-hmm. And so I love how they start. Like you said, uh, there's a rush. You, you see, you know, a puck using his puck spark to blind the nice ice guts pushes through as fast as he can. And it's, to me, a continuation of uh, the kind of chase that's been going on ever since the volume started. So I love the tunnel vision we're shown here, which is like, I don't know, deformed by the speed. Uh, then the full page of the goat guy who's now, you know, in his monster form, holding Cascade his mercy with the buzzers behind him. So Well, for, first of all, the, the tunnel vision you refer to, it's, it's actually like it's almost first person. You know, yeah. This, this, the, the final three panels. Yes. It's like from Gut's perspective. It's very cool. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, totally. I agree. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. You were right to mention it. And so, yeah, we got this dreadful sight of the guy holding Cascade. And then the panels of his uh, snake uh, penis appendage thingy uh, sliding on her robe, so and throwing her into a panic, you know, she, as she kind of comes through and uh, uh, it evokes scenes from the eclipse. So you know that sight in her purple of the, you know, mm-hmm. being surrounded. It's very potent, and we get to see it many times in the series, and every time it's very very strong. <laughs> so the um the, it's not just the eclipse the the shapes that are there are of, of the of apostles that are over her yeah. in that scene. I thought that was very cleverly done. Just like very kind of wavy lines of the of the apostles that were towering over her at the time. Yeah, pretty much. And I, I like the fact that you know the uh what says the, the whole of the IRS itself represents the black sun. Mm-hmm. You know. That's, yeah, that's, 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 so that's why it's so clever. It's just, and that's why Mura's reused it because it's very, I mean, it's very strong, very good. The, the imagery cool. is great. So then we see Isidro trying to lift a big stone to uh, save her, and behind him, so fast and so you know small, as almost to be unnoticed even to the reader. We see guts steps and he's jumping, and I think you know I think mm-hmm. it's no mistake. Mura doesn't put more emphasis on it here. Because I think he's uh, focusing on the next few scenes because they're what matter. Mm-hmm. So, turning into the page, we see the Dragon Slayer fall down with a force which is rarely uh, shown in the manga, which has a kind of air wave around it. And uh, the goat notices it and tries to dodge, but not fast enough. So, you know, he loses an arm and, uh, and his dick, I guess. And uh, <laughs> yeah, we got a frozen scene next with reactions from like Isidro, Nina, the Higgs, the bad guys, even Casca. And Mura shows guts, but uh, not his face itself, which I find interesting. He shows it from Casca's perspective, 
you know, she, like whole she sees him. Then the possessed attack on the next page and he, you know, guts turns into a kind of literal whirlwind around her, slicing them to bits. And finally we get that double page shot, which uh, I think is one of the most beautiful in the series by mm-hmm. far. Yeah, So I agree. with the bodies falling in the background, the dust kicked off by guts' feet and Casca on her knees, which is, you know... It's the... It's just a clever moment where we've had all this action leading into this moment, right? Like, and so much movement lines and action, action, action. And Mira pauses for a moment, yeah. you know, is the atmosphere is suddenly cool and slow and calm. Yep. And, uh, it's much, like in a know, song almost, in on what, you know, like, you know how the crescendo yeah. hits and then suddenly you get that, that mm. moment. Yeah. Yeah. There's a rhythm yeah. to it for yeah. sure. It's a very heroic moment for Guts. One of his most heroic moments. Yeah, by far. You know, she, and, uh, she looks calm and saved, and she's looking at him, and he's looking back at her. And, uh, you know, I, like, I feel like, you know, at this point, it's after so long, after, like, two volumes of trying to get to her, we finally get this. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I say this half-jokingly, but in a way, the series that ended at that scene at that moment almost wouldn't have minded, you know. It's it's just it's, it's oh, wow. No, it's that good. I think it's that good. I think it's, it's very powerful. Very powerful. Yeah, I think it's really powerful. You know, I think, you know, that's a, a, that's the kind of scene you could you could add a story with, you know. That's my point. It's a yeah. kind yeah. of scene you finish on that, you know, like just think about it for a month. You finish on that, if you remove uh, Femto and everything just on God's finally reuniting with her, mm. that scene boom. It's I mean, I think it's that great. Yeah. It's I think good. the relief, like the also, that's like visually, is very palpable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's something. It's, it, yeah, go ahead. It's a small thing, but I just like how he 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 did focus this this the focus of the scene is guts and casca. He fades out of everything mm-hmm. else. The white background, the, the 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 bodies are still there, but they're faded out in the background. Yeah, I, I, I find it interesting that he chose to show them at all. You know. Yeah. And yeah. what's even more interesting is that, like he. You know, deliberately removed everything else, except you know that dust kicked off by the feet, and you you get the blood on the dragon slayer. But I feel like he didn't want to do just a pure white panel. But at the same time, you know that the scene is not just you know like that. There's other people around, other stuff. But yeah, it's just really to focus on them. And actually, yep. like that's important enough that the next page is a uh, you know uh, two shots of their faces. You know, as guts looks. Uh, back at her and she looks at him and that's the uh, opening shot we get to see at the beginning of the volume so yeah, yeah very powerful and then the moment breaks and uh, we're back in the story you know time starts again and the, the Hicks are startled that the black swordsman is here and Farnese uh, especially is distraught and you know that's despite their numbers because you can see on that you know a panel that there are still quite many of them Mm-hmm. So Guts uh, gives his draw the task of uh, helping Casca and Nina escape, and uh, of course his draws all too happy to do it because he plans to, you know, uh, use it as a bargaining chip later on. <laughs> you see, Puck. You see, Puck is positively exhausted by you know the, the speed at which he's you know flown, and he's resting up in Casca's cleavage, which makes me think that elves really do have all the fun, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Asidro comments that when did he get here? He immediately basically went straight to Casca's Cleveland. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh, well, you know, that's that's how we do it, where I come from. F- found a new home. He needed a good cushion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the Hicks are confused and they're debating whether the Black Soulsman is their ally or not in this battle. 
And uh, Farnese again <laughs> puts on a cool face and says, well, you know, just kill all those who resist. Even though she was ready yeah. to turn tail uh, just a while ago, you know. And um, Guts, uh, well, he just cuts his way through heretics. And actually likes the shot of their faces, you know, the uh, top shot as they rush to him before he cuts them down. Mm. And we see Farnese mm-hmm. immediately lose a, loses a cool when she sees his, uh, him escaping, you know, as he wake, makes his way towards the exit. So, you know, I, I like how short-lived her uh, cool-headed, you know, look is. Yep. And, um, yeah, and Sabrico has to save her uh, because she's about to to get, you know, uh, grabbed by a guy. And he takes the misery of what a wreck she is mentally. And, you know, he knows what he has to do at that moment that come to play later on. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's yeah. at, that, at this point, you know, he sees how... What stage she's thrown in by seeing the Black Souls man about to escape, and that's when he decides he has to do something about it. So I, I like it. I like it's decided uh, right then and there. Yeah. So, do you, yeah. Do you want to um, finish out this episode and then call it a break, or call it a break right here, where right before the guts fight starts? Oh uh, well, I can finish. Uh, up to you. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead and finish right. them. <clears throat> So meanwhile, uh, Gus and Co. Uh, process towards the exit at the back of the cave, guided by Isidro. But they are stopped upon by the goat, whose horns uh, Guts blocks in extremis with the Dragon Slayer. The force of the blow is actually yeah. strong enough that Gus actually falls down from it, which you don't see often. So yeah, mm. the, the guy just won't let Casca go. He want, really wants to mingle. Uh, so Guts and him exchange strikes but the beast actually proves surprisingly fast which is one of the themes in this fight It's uh, the, the goat is really fast he dodges a blow knocks Guts down on his back then jumps back around and on top of him and uh, again Guts barely blocks it with a DS uh, as he lies on the ground so we see a beautiful shot of the goat standing uh, atop of the wooden stakes that uh, hold uh, I don't know a ball or something over the fire basking in the smoke. I think it's a pretty cool shot. Yeah, yeah cool fact. Yeah. So, yeah, Gus knows he's faced with a potent enemy. You know, he even comments on the fact he, you know, Godo's armor saved his spine, otherwise he would have, you know, broken his spine. So he tells Isidro to live with Casca without him. Uh, the goat objects and tries to stop them, but Gus manages to shoot him down in midair with his bowgun. So, yeah, the thing is fast, but not faster than crystal balls. Before that, just it's just a small panel, but I wanted to point it out that you know Guts is getting into this fight with a goat, but he actually pauses for a moment, noticing Casca, and then this is like a new dynamic to him that he's going to have to compensate yep. for in all future fights, like getting her out of the vicinity, and then he can focus on the fight. You know, so Isidro, thankfully, is there that he can take care of that. But yeah, it's not always the exactly. case. Exactly. Actually, he comments uh, on the fact he's again entrusting her to someone else. But yeah. that, you know, seeing uh, a pseudo-apostle like the goat is here means, you know, first that the Skull Knight wasn't something and that there's really something big going on around here, but also that it's something that will come into play much later on. But he can't, uh, like you say, he sees Casca is here, he sees as a big enemy, uh, you know, actually dangerous, and he can't risk her. So in order to fight, he has to make sure she doesn't get harmed. So it's a new dynamic, and that's why he entrusted her to uh, Isidro. And the last page is a great split shot of uh, Guts and Casca's faces, as Guts says. He'll, he'll yeah. take her with him this time, no matter what, and he'll do what he has to do. Right. 
we're going to call it a close there for this episode. We just ran out of time. Um, I wish I could continue a little bit more because this fight actually concludes very quickly. But uh, we'll save that for the next time. Um, so tune in next time to episode 76 where we will be back for more of our reread. Um, it's possible that we'll be back with a new episode of Berserk before then. Um, I'm not exactly sure. We know this series is set to resume in the summer. Um, but I think, honestly, I have a feeling he'll coincide the release of the new episode with the release of the new volume, 38, which is set to come out uh, late June. So just a That'd hunch. That'd be nice. I could be wrong, which is just a hunch. No, That'd yeah, be nice, yeah. I'm, like, I'm quite convinced it would be the case. That's just... It has been in the past. You know, so. it's it's possible Mira's already finished the episode for two months and Akusensha is just keeping it for the when the volume comes out. That's how they, that's the editors, uh, you know, that's how they do it. They got to keep that hype train right. going, you know? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> they want to, you know, do a big push so it would be the episode, uh, the volume, and the anime, you know, like that way they can have a big media train, hype train going on. Yeah. That would be good, though. Yep. Something to look forward to. We'll have news for that uh, in the coming weeks, uh, and I'm sure the anime, the new anime's production hype cycle will be continuing as well, so follow along the thread if you're interested. And uh, stay tuned. Stay tuned.